You're listening to the Comic Book Informer Podcast with Vince and Raj, a podcast for everyone from comic nerds to comic noobs. You know who you are. Now here's your host, Vince. Hello, everybody, and welcome to issue 72 of the Comic Book Informer. And honestly, who cares when we're coming to you? Because we're just throwing all the rules out the window this time around. Right, Roger? Uh, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> I, I promise you, you will notice absolutely no difference on your None end. But trust me, all. there's some shenanigans going on over here. <laughs> Well, last week we were talking about uh, catching up on some of the X-Men stuff. So this week I thought we would do another catch up. Uh, previously, we've spoken about the big return of Johnny Storm. Yeah, I'm not bothering with a spoiler at this point because it's been several months. And we talked about Fantastic Four issue 600 as well as 601. So we're going to check back in, not just with Fantastic Four, but also with FF. And I'd actually like to start with FF this time around because they're actually keeping that running as a side series to Fantastic Four which I'm sure is going to cause all sorts of chaos with how many issues of Fantastic Four have been out once I start getting around number 700. <laughs> I like it because it's splitting up the storyline. So if you are enjoying the storyline, so far, of course, I mean, they may very well change that later on, depending on what story arcs they're, they're working on. But as it stands right now with the story arc, it allows you to enjoy various facets of that same story arc. I really, really enjoyed that a lot. Mm-hmm. So FF is written by Jonathan Hickman with art by Juan Bobilo, at least for issues 12 through 14, with uh, customary artist Nick Dragata joining back up for issue 15. Again, we're going to get back to that later. <laughs> and at least off the top, the, the artwork in those first several issues is just weird. I Actually, I'm, I'm running through them right now. The um, – I – I found that it it wasn't bad. It was it had a style to it. It had a really interesting style to it. It was it was edgier than we're used to with this. Maybe I can say that. But mm -hmm. I didn't mind it at all. I actually I wasn't as crazy about fifteen, the art in fifteen as I was with the others. The other ones I didn't mind it at all. There was uh, a lot more mood, a lot more mm -hmm. atmosphere with all of the dark shading and everything, which fit in with not just the, the content, but the locations as well. It was just a very jarring departure oh, yeah, yeah. from the previous, you know, 11 issues. Yeah. And it, it, I, once I got used to it, I was like, okay, I, I was cool with it. It's just, it was a huge, huge difference. Yeah. But anyway, this is uh, the storyline that we've been anticipating ever since, God, what was it? Fantastic Four, 580 something. All hope lies in doom. And I, I've been waiting for, God, was it like a year or so now to, to find out what happens in this? And I was not disappointed. The FF uh, title is following the, the kids of the Future Foundation. Uh, if you remember from Fantastic Four 601, they actually teleported the top several floors of the Baxter building away to escape the uh, invasion from uh, the Kree, I think it was at the time. Uh, there were so many people attacking. I can't remember who specifically was attacking the Baxter building. But they actually end up, surprise, surprise, of all places, Latveria, because little Val needs a favor from Uncle Doom. <laughs> so they meet up with Doom. Uh, Reed's father, Nathaniel, there is there, along with the last of the alternate universe, Reed Richards. And this is where we start seeing the master plan from the last several years of Hickman's Fantastic Four slash FF stuff coming together. 
all of what's happened from beginning to end has just been part of Nathaniel and Val's plan to buy some time for the big battle at the end. It's we get to see the, the the man behind the curtain here kind of thing. And as opposed to a lot of other things, and we've recently, and once again, same as last week, talking about it in terms of games, sometimes you're like, I can't buy it. I can't buy that this was planned this far in, in advance kind of thing. And yet with this, I do, because it is so very well tied in together. I've been reading this and what I come through, I think about once I'm done reading is that here's a writer that planned. I mean, this sucker outlined everything way in advance so that it all tied in well together. I loved it. Mm -hmm. So what's going on over in Fantastic Four? Of course, you have this huge battle between the Kree and the Inhumans and the Annihilation Wave, Galactus. There's so much ridiculousness going on in Fantastic Four that the fate of the very Earth is at stake here. And Nathaniel has been hopping through time for who knows how long, trying to find the right solution to the problem. He's seen the Earth destroyed countless times. He knows what doesn't work, and he's finally come up with a plan for what does work. And they said their their goal here isn't to win. It's just simply to delay. Because if you remember back uh, in, in the earlier Fantastic Four stuff, on the other side of that dimensional bridge, the Council of, I forget what it's called, the Council of Reeds, let's just go with, awakened the Mad Celestials. The Celestials are, you know, the intergalactic gods of the Marvel Universe. This particular dimensions were not doing so well mentally and decided that they needed to destroy Reed. Not any particular Reed, just all Reeds ever. So they wiped out most of uh, the council, the few stragglers made it to our universe, set the whole Fantastic Four thing in motion. So now they actually have to go back through the bridge and just quite simply delay the Celestials long enough for help to show up over in our universe. And it was just epic because you had little Franklin finally exhibiting his powers where other people can see the stuff we've seen him practicing in, in, in quiet with his imaginary friend. You see... Doom. I, I I am at the point where I think Doctor Doom is quite possibly the greatest villain ever. <laughs> I at minimum when, when the most good, heroic. Yeah. When a good writer gets a hold of Doom, like Hickman, like Mayberry, you really see the depths that that character can reach, and he just is awesome in these couple issues. That's it. No, no. About well, I was. I was. You, you were on a roll there. I don't want to get in your way. I. I agree. No, I do. I. I. It's the interactions between him and Val though throughout that are so utterly fantastic. When she's mm-hmm. telling him that she lied to him, and that you know, like I lied to you, I tricked you so that you do here. I knew you wouldn't survive, and he's like, "I'm doomed." And you're like, "I am doomed. Nobody's gonna kill me," and it's like. All of those moments were utterly fantastic. And it is, again, here's a, uh, he's different. He, the character is different, as he should be, depending on who he's dealing with. And so it's not that, you know, pompous, evil kind of mentality. No, it's it's Uncle Doom kind of thing. And no, I absolutely adored it. I thought it was fantastic. And, of course, behind Uncle Doom, you have somebody who doesn't think he's better than everybody else. He knows he's better than everybody else. He is fully confident in his ability to stand up to four essentially gods on his own and just handle it. He's like, 
I got this. Yeah. And <laughs> you, you give, you know, the one of the greatest supervillains of all time a heroic moment, but not a character twist. It's something that really fits with just him. So the plan works, you know, all, all of the planning for the last however many years, the development of the future foundation, the building of the bridges, this and that. All they had to do was delay these Celestials for 27 minutes, and they pulled it off. Because as we see at the end here, help finally arrives in the form of Franklin's imaginary friend, this little invisible voice that's been training him and teaching him. And of course, we find out that it's Franklin. <laughs> Franklin from the future has been helping out young Franklin. It's it's a nice little thing that they did here and it of course it ties in in huge ways back in fantastic four and see here's a and going back not just to franklin but franklin and the team of kids and whatnot that we've been seeing here um like i said before even about ff2 if it, if it's too much about the kids and it's it's kids bickering and being stupid i'm not enjoying it and again same as with wolverine last week kind of thing wolverine is a little beeps if you're getting a bunch of little brats it's not fun to read here, however, you're getting a bunch of young characters that are really rising to the occasion. Yes, there's a couple that are kind of being a little sarcastic brats, but overall they're rising to it. And especially Franklin. I mean, dude, the stuff with Franklin has just been utterly fantastic and really enjoyable and believable in the context of the story. Yeah, because keep in mind, Franklin Richards is quite possibly the most powerful character in the history of the Marvel Universe. Yeah, they would they call him beyond Omega level when they're yeah. looking at him? <laughs> the Celestials. Well, remember, you know, 20-ish years ago in comics, everybody died and Franklin just said no. <laughs> he set up an entire pocket universe, literally pocket. It was in his pocket universe where the dead heroes could live on before they could come back to our universe. This is how powerful Franklin Richards can be. Yeah. But they've just been holding him back for so many years through inhibitors and whatnot. But he's finally tapped back into his natural abilities and is growing as a character and as a powerhouse. I like too the uh, the stuff with uh, with Val too and the grandfather when they're talking about this whole time thing. And I love that concept here. It's not about we need to assemble an army to battle this or we need to figure out a way to close this or we need to do this or whatever. No, it's about time. They just need that time. And that little brainstorming session where she's talking to him too and she's saying, well, can't we just get rid of the bridge? No, then they're just going to get a bridge somewhere else. Here we can control where it is. Can we do this? No. Okay, well, what do we need? Time. Okay, how much time we need? And it's just like the <laughs> little kid. Okay, well, what do we need? And then she draws out her little map with the timelines of what we can do and things like that. And uh, and so all of those little things work so well together to to drive that story on the FF side of things. Meanwhile, on the Fantastic Four side, it's much more action-paced and, and whatnot. Um, and, and again, you've got all of the stuff with Johnny at that point, because yes, we've known now for a little while that he was back, but still in terms of the story, he still only just recently got back. Mm -hmm. So let's actually jump into the Fantastic Four side of things. Uh, again, written by Jonathan Hickman, art by Barry Kitson for issues 602 and 603 before it switches back to Steve Epting for 604. And my God, <laughs> this is quite possibly the pinnacle of ridiculous 
huge, awesome stuff that the Fantastic Four has done in their history. Because if you're looking for something completely big and ridiculous and both literally and figuratively out of this world, Fantastic Four is the comic for you. And Oh my god, it's, it's ridiculous. It's, <laughs> there's just too much crap going on there. See, for 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 years, you know, way back in the day, that's what had me interested in the Fantastic Four. It was the comic that would go farther than any other comic did, reaching and at times exceeding the point of ridiculousness, but in a fun and interesting way. And it kind of lost its way over the intervening years, but it's finally back to, at least in my opinion, what the Fantastic Four should be. It's just going to be one of those things now that, okay, well, how do they top this? Like, seriously, how can you possibly top this story arc in terms of just grandiose nut job kind of situations? <laughs> so this grandiose nut job situation, like I said previously, involves the Kree and the Inhumans staged in this huge war in Earth's atmosphere. Uh, Johnny has to lead the forces of the negative zone in to intervene before Earth gets destroyed, even though that seems to be happening despite their best efforts. So, of course, how do you solve this problem? You call Galactus. <laughs> the only force that can quite possibly stop what's going on here. Well, part of the problem, too, is that it's not just about, and I like that again, you're, you're seeing, you're seeing writing where he is plotting things out. I applaud that. This I was love established that. I, well, not just that, but in terms of looking at, okay, here is this insane war in the, the, the stratosphere, atmosphere, everything around Earth and whatnot, what's that going to mean to the people on the planet? And a lot of times they don't bother thinking about those things, but all of those things are thought out so that they know if they don't do something to actually, you know, completely control the situation, then basically humanity's done for on the Earth, even if they win. So there's a lot of plot points that I like that he didn't leave those holes there. I like that he thought it through enough that he wrote in all of these situations, and that's why the progression makes sense. Because honestly, oh, I'm just going to call Galactus to give us a hand kind of thing. Otherwise would have been a leap. It's like, oh, come on. But it works here. Yeah, because as established previously, there are certain primal forces uh, involved in Earth that Galactus wants to protect for his own sake. So they think that this is the big moment Galactus told them about and he would have to step in to save the Earth. And of course he arrives and he's like, this? This, this is nothing. Yeah, this isn't you what I called this. you about. <laughs> but he steps in anyway. And that's when the Celestials that we were talking about in FF arrive in our dimension. And he's like, oh, okay, yeah, this is what I told you about. <laughs> so we see Galactus just going all out, manages to actually destroy one of the Celestials before they pull a Voltron on him, <laughs> combine together and just absolutely decimate the, the world eater. He, he gets wiped out in a heartbeat. So we're kind of screwed here at this point. <laughs> the, but like we saw in FF, they managed to buy enough time that help could arrive. And like we said, that help arrives in the future versions of Valeria and Franklin. Now, way back at the beginning of Hickman's run, which we haven't covered on the podcast, but I did go back to check out myself because I was enjoying this stuff so much. Franklin and Valeria actually did visit. They, they spoke with Sue. They spoke with Franklin and, you know, told them about, you know, the stuff coming up and how they had to be ready. And we see that 
pep talk they gave to Sue, recapped in narrations, as everybody's pretty much just getting jacked up by the Celestials, but Sue is in her full motherly, don't mess with my family mode, proving that when pushed to it, she can be the most powerful member of the oh, Fantastic yeah. Four. Oh, yeah. When she sends everybody, she's got the the, 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 the things over their heads there, and then <laughs> out. <laughs> it's like, oh, yeah, you go, girl. <laughs> so this all leads up to the epic moment where old Franklin meets young Franklin. And yeah, again, like I said, they've been training together. Young Franklin gives older Franklin his, you know, the power he's been storing up and Franklin just goes off the charts, starts whooping up on the celestials. Okay. One of the best panels I've seen. <laughs> I, I I can't put my mind into the proper state of talking about Her- Galactus has had so many heralds over the years. Franklin has only has one, and he raises Galactus himself from the dead as his tool. <laughs> how how much more epic can you get than that? It, 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 I know. <laughs> it, it's just I love too that it wasn't. Um, that it wasn't any of the actual Fantastic Four, that it was Franklin, that it was Val that did so much of the work, the prep work for it too, and things like that. I love that it was the secondary characters, um, and 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 Johnny, of course, too, and how much he did early on in, in that little mini story arc. But I love that they basically had to take the back seat and watch their kid save them all, kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So here we get to the core concept of Fantastic Four, that despite all the huge intergalactic things going on and the ridiculous storylines and the super powerful villains and this and that, it's still a story about a family. And Nathaniel's big goal here, you know, we, we thought it was to save Earth, but it was even simpler than that. He just wanted to save Reed, his son, because this was the date that Reed was destined to die. And you get that great father-son moment, not just between Reed and Nathaniel, but also between Franklin and Reed, because it was really Franklin who set them down this path because the older version of Franklin grew up without a father. And you just have that great line of every boy deserves a father, and he will fight to his last breath to make sure that young Franklin grows up with his dad around. Freaking heart wrenching. Seriously, <laughs> that was. how do you go from <laughs> epic world breaking action to tearjerker in two pages? Yeah, that was. Yeah, no, that was. Going back to my brilliantly written, that was fantastic. <laughs> and they they go even farther, talking about how you know when Reed joined the, the the Council of Reeds, the one thing they all had in common was they left their families behind for the greater good, and how when Reed rejected them. Logically and rationally, that was the wrong decision. How can you put the needs of, you know, his small little family ahead of the entire universe? Logically, you can't. But that's what makes our version of Reed different than any other. He was able to make that decision. And Franklin is Reed Richards' greatest creation. Franklin Richards is the one thing our Reed could create that none of those other Reeds could. Amazing. Oh, yeah, definitely. I and it's it, same as with the other one. I can't wait to see where they're going to go next with this. Now that they've opened this door, this you know Pandora's box is open now. Let's see what else is in there. See now, interestingly, of course, it also ends with that fun little scene of you know like okay, Franklin, you got your powers. Let's learn how to use them now. Yeah. 
But interestingly, this is actually the end of Jonathan Hickman's planned storyline over the, the, the two and a half years he's been writing Fantastic Four and FF. He's still writing both of them for another six months, but this was really his big storyline. The rest is just small character-focused issues that expand upon what he's done but the 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 core giant storyline is done with so yeah like you said it's going to be interesting to see what he does just to tie up the loose ends and to kind of set things up for whoever's going to be writing it next well he works with characters so well too it's not just about the huge storylines he does very a very good job with um characterizations and things like that so i want to see what he's going to do with all those characters i mean we've gotten to see in other comics some of the stuff going on with uh well spider-man and in storm Mm -hmm. Uh, Johnny and things like that so and we got to see some of Spider-Man in in this holding the leash that just kills me that was just freaking brilliant <laughs> um but all of the other stuff between the family and the kids and all of the other little characters that they've got in there i mean we saw them saving all those those what are the moguls there and mm-hmm. <laughs> kind of showing them how that they're going to use a toilet and indoor plumbing now <laughs> but i mean there's so many things that can be done character wise it doesn't have to be grand galactic saving the 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 galaxy and universe kind of thing so i still want to see what he's going to pull off before he's done with this it's going to be very interesting we've seen the uh the promos for next month's uh ff number 17 which shows johnny and peter you know just you know in the house fighting over the tv remote so i'm really interested to see hickman's take on that relationship as opposed to what we just saw from dan slot over an amazing spider-man that's going to be pretty interesting to see how that works out yeah definitely Okay, well, as for what we've been reading, I've been reading a lot lately, and especially over these last couple episodes, something has started to, I don't want to say annoy me, but I've really noticed it a lot, and that's the changing of art teams on on various comics. And as we discussed last week, at least in the X-Men comics, they're keeping it contained to one storyline. Now, Greg Land and Carlos Pacheco, or um, Carlos Pacheco? Yeah, Carlos Pacheco, not a good fit for each other. (laughs) <laughs> on Uncanny. In Wolverine and the X-Men, at least Nick Bradshaw and Chris Piccolo mesh a little better. They're obviously, no two artists are going to be the same. So you at least, if you're going to go with that concept, you at least have to find ones that it's not going to be too disruptive. But what we've seen here on Fantastic Four, we had Steve Epting draw issues 600 and 601. We had Barry Kitson step in for 602 and 603, only to have Epting come back in for 604. So you have artists trading off issues within the same storyline and nothing against Kitson. His art was fine. It's just it's noticeable, especially when you're in the middle of a storyline going from one cliffhanger directly to where it starts up in the next issue. It is it can be a very jarring transition. You look at the new 52. They, They couldn't even make it through all six issues of any of their comics without an artist change. And that's on top of the big, you know, shuffling they have in all the creative teams over there. And it's something I've seen elsewhere on the Internet. People really aren't liking the fact that creative teams aren't teams anymore. I think that if they could find again, like you're saying, too, if they could find artists that are similar enough that they can work well together, then you can have it so that you can, you know, just keep these two guys working on this series. At least then they can trade off as much as they want. The art styles complement each other. But even beyond that, 
when a writer and an artist work together for a specific period of time, they just develop a rapport with each other. They don't, you know, the writer doesn't need to put in quite as many notes because he knows how the artist is going to draw. Look at Ultimate Spider-Man. Bendis and Bagley worked together for, God, what was it, like 80-some issues together. And that team between the two of them really led to something special there. Uh, the other one off the top of my head that I, I really notice is Invincible Iron Man. Uh, Matt Fraction and Salvador LaRocca, I think it's like 50 or 60 issues at this point they've been doing together. And LaRocca is a freaking machine. Even when they do point one issues and double ships, LaRocca has drawn every issue of that comic without a noticeable decline in quality, even though he's pumping out two, three comics a month. So when you have a writer and an artist that work together that well – it makes the comic itself better. And I understand the publisher wants to have an issue of X-Men on the stands every single month, even if it takes five to six weeks to do the art. Personally, as a fan, I would rather see a cohesive team that works together to develop a feeling in a comic. I'm not that – if it if it takes a little longer, it takes a little longer. I'm not that interested in having – an issue of that particular comic in my hand every four weeks. I'm more interested in having a cohesive feeling to the stories in those comics. Yeah. No, I definitely won't argue with you. And I, I, I just wanted to touch on that this week because especially here, what we're seeing with the Fantastic Four stuff, it was especially noticeable for me. So that's just my feeling on the subject. <laughs> it's, it's, it's frustrating when we look at it too. Now, granted, I mean, to a certain degree, yes, it's easy for us to say that because neither one of us is an artist. So mm -hmm. it's not that we can look at the work that's involved and say, oh, yeah, I definitely understand everything. And then look at the business side from, you know, well, especially the big two kind of thing and say, OK, yeah, we understand why you're doing. So it's easier for us to say it. But then we're the we're still the ones that read it and we're still the ones that can we're the the intended audience we're the ones that can see that symmetry between the two of them when they're working together properly we're the ones that and and because it is such a visual medium we're the ones that appreciate it when it's so well done and we're also the ones that can point to comics that that fail maybe a little bit strong but you know don't do nearly as well despite a fantastic story just because the art was so unbearably bad and i don't know that it's just that the the big two and the others are hiring a lot of artists that just don't have the same caliber of work or experience or whatever or it's just that they're being rushed so much that they don't get to reach their potential of what they should well, I think that's what it is at this point, especially, again, amongst the big two. There are so few comics that sell well. You have, There's a very big divide between the top tier of comics and the second tier of comics on the sales charts. So their incentive is to get as many issues of those popular comics out as possible. I look at how many issues of Uncanny X-Force we've had in the amount of time it's been out. I think there are more months where we've had two issues of Uncanny X-Force than it, the months where we've had one. And of course, no artist can keep up with that pace. So it, it's it's a publishing decision to try and get as much money out of a franchise as they can. And it's the wrong one. I mean... Long term, it, it definitely is it, it, going yeah. to hurt. Yeah. It's just, again, you got to look at it in terms of... Okay, do you want to just put out quantity or do you actually want to put out quality? And unfortunately, a lot of the times what we're seeing is, no, they don't give a rat's ass about the quality of the work. It's just get it out. And that's disappointing. Mm -hmm. See, I actually worked with, uh, I, I knew the, the guy, Rob Sacchetto, back where I used to live, and he had worked on some stuff. And I'd seen him work on a lot of other things as well, too. So I got to see a little bit behind the scenes uh, in terms of the work involved that he put into it as well. And 
and it's interesting and it's 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 you get that insight in terms of just how much work oh how yeah many hours it takes to put out something that is good and not just rush through and he used to complain as well uh, and comment about you know some of the comments that were put out that were rushed that he could see it because he did it he he understood the concepts and the, everything involved so he'd look at it and say look at how rushed that is look at here 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 and here and it used to just madden him to no end and it's like yeah no i can i can appreciate that like if you want to put out a comic like Justice League with Jim Lee or Avenging Spider-Man with Joe Madreira or even Incredible Hulk with Mark Silvestri, if you want to put out a comic like that with that top tier artist that does take five to six weeks to draw an issue, that's the decision you have to make. If you want that top tier artist, you have to give them the time to do their work. And then you have the decision of are we going to put this out on the newsstands every single month or are we going to give the comic the time to do what it needs to do? All right, and that that's just my off my chest for the week, so talk about some comics, please. Okay, all right. Well, I'm actually going to quickly cover a few here. You mentioned The Incredible Hulk, Incredible Hulk number six. I actually wrote a review for it on the site, which I am starting to write more, so if you guys want to fit, visit the site, I'm putting in more features and, and reviews as the days go by. Um, this started off as a relaunch that I was really digging and enjoying and having fun with, and it's it's jump the hulk out shark it's 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 i love that yeah dude it's (laughs) because there were there was literally a hulk out shark there are there were i know i thought that that analogy through uh it's it's really it's it's not it's not good it just point blank it's just not good anymore jason aaron is is losing it here there's there's huge holes in the story and what's going on i mean it's just it's just not fun. And then you're looking at some of the decisions that were made and some of the explanations that he's giving for the whole split and doom splitting them up and stuff. And it's like, Oh God, you had me, you, I was having fun with this and now it's just bad. It's just bad. The whole stuff with Amanda too. And, and Igor, Oh, come on, Jesus. It just absolutely bad. And then the art. Wow. <laughs> you notice the issues without Sylvester. <laughs> the art has gotten bad. <laughs> the art here is, wow, the people are just weirdly proportioned. <laughs> the The flow doesn't work. There's scenes where people are getting punched, but you don't see a fist or anything. There's, it's just, wow, it just wasn't good. So, yeah, there, there's that. In terms of good, though, then we got Amazing Spider-Man. 682 which starts off the uh chapter one of the uh end of the earth mm-hmm. i'm actually working on a review for that i kind of started it up today i'm hoping to have it up tomorrow um that dude that was just freaking phenomenal that and then you want to talk about good art holy crap in hell it was freaking awesome stefano caselli That's, uh, yeah caselli yeah that oh it was just awesome some of those two panel shots i was like wow but it's a good story too like here we got to get dance lawn um a fantastic story where you're showing you know parker where he's like you know things are working out that everything's going <laughs> well with horizon lab but not just do not not only does he have cool gadgets for himself some freaking green gobliny kind of stuff which was hilarious but also he's finding out how the stuff that he's invented for himself as Spider-Man is being used in other applications that are helping save people. Um, so there's so much going good. And then you're getting where it's finally been leading up to with the Sinister Six and with with uh, Octavius and everything. And so 
it's this building into this monstrous freaking issue. Really fantastic stuff. And it's just that final panel. Dude, screw Captain America. Freaking <laughs> Spider-Man should be running the Avengers. When he's standing there, new costume. Get over it. <laughs> Avengers. Ass- Actually, he should have wrote Avengers freaking assemble. That would have been even better. <laughs> Fantastic. Fantastic issue. I cannot wait to see where this story arc is going to be going. This is actually a fairly big one by the sound of it, too. Mm-hmm. So, that that's all you got for us then? Hell no. I'm not. Oh, done. oh, okay. I okay. Got, I got Continue. T- two more. Please. I was giving you a chance to put in your two cents if you wanted to. No, no. I think you summed it up quite nicely. Okay. Saga. Now, every once in a while, you read something <laughs> like Alice in Wonderland, kind of, and you go, You were high when you wrote this. <laughs> You can't hide it. Okay, we can tell. <laughs> this story, is, and this is uh, Brian Vaughn with art by Fiona Staples. Um, first of all, I like the art. It wasn't phenomenal, but it really worked with the style of what was going on. The only thing I wasn't crazy about was the page layouts were far too simple. Way, way, way too simple. When you have a story of this crazy nut job kind of thing you need it to be more engaging throughout and i found that overall it was just the layout was so utterly simple that it actually dumbed down the atmosphere hell maybe that's what they want but who knows um if you get a little too high concept you'll lose some people (laughs) yeah well that's true i guess um i think at times well at times he's trying too hard First of all, it it feels very much like he's trying too hard with this story to set up something that is so incredibly weird. I I, I damn near needed a bicycle horn there. Um, (laughs) And then, of course, there's and and you get that I that that feeling as well, just from the dialogue as well, and from the swearing throughout and and the concepts, and I mean the robots with the the TV heads (laughs) having sex. I mean, it's like, okay, you're trying too hard. And that's holding it back, in my opinion, because you've got a story that I'm, I'm interested in the, the galaxy that you're creating here, the universe that you're creating. I'm interested in these, these forces, but some of it doesn't seem to work very well. And some of it just feels forced. And then the dialogue at times feels way too forced. And so it's because of that, that may really hold it back. I mean, because at, at the heart of what it is, it's a very simple story that's been done many times before. You know, it's the mm-hmm. West Side Story kind of people who aren't supposed to be together, and, and but they are. And then, of course, it's not good enough for them to have a symbol of their love as a ring. No, they also have to have a child, and that's going to be their symbol. So there's there's all of these things about the story at the root of it that it's really not that fantastical. It's been done many times over again. And so it's almost as if to... To, to make up for that, well, let's just put it in the most screwed up nut job setting possible, and then that'll make it something that's more, you know, kitschy. And so, I don't know, It's it's it'd be far too easy to hop on the bandwagon and say, oh, this is the greatest thing ever, it's so original and all that, and it's like, no, it kind of really isn't. Mm-hmm. So, it's really going to have to be the writing over the next little while that sells this, for me at least, because... The first issue, it's again, it's, it's, it's been done many times before, and the writer's trying too hard is what I came away with. 
no, I'm not going to argue that. But again, just as it's very hard on certain things for me to separate the fanboy and me from you know the 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 respectable podcast host. <laughs> respectable? I, almost made, I almost made it through that without laughing. Yeah, really. <laughs> but it, it there's so much in that first issue like you said i really hope he does dial it back and really explore more the more character driven story that that is at place here i i gave him the the one issue to go completely nuts set up his universe and it's such a crazy universe even despite it's at the core being that typical story that I do really want to see where he goes with it and what he does with it as a fan of his previous work. And it's just, again, for me, it's also that it, and it sounds weird to say considering the setting, but if it, it feels so fake because he's trying so hard to be edgy. You know what it feels like? It feels like the little white kids, the little 13-year-old white boys with their gangster uniforms and things. They're so freaking gangster and this and that. And it's like, no, your mom drove you to the mall. You're not gangster kid, okay? Trust me, you don't know what that means. That's what this feels like. He's trying so hard to be edgy. And it's like, mm, it's coming off as forced and fake. So... I'm really hoping that'll change. I, I think you lost me on that metaphor. <laughs> did I really? <laughs> I'm sure it made sense. It did make sense. It yeah, did. I, it I, did. I You're in it freaking Miami, so you got a whole bunch of freaking real gangsters there. I'm up in freaking white, cold north <laughs> Canada. So <laughs> I'm when, sure there's a big difference between when, Miami and... This is what I'm saying. So when we got these little punk kids here that are trying to act all thug and tough and all that and dressing the part, and it's like, you don't live in L.A. or Miami, buddy. You live in Upper White Bread, Canada. You don't know what gangsta is. It ain't you, I assure you. But you're trying really hard to act tough. And so that's what this feels like. Now, does it make sense? I'll take some sure. pictures next time I go to the mall. I'll show you. That kid. That. Oh, I'm sure that would go over real well. The the hairy old dude taking pictures of the 13-year-olds at the mall. What are you mall. talking about, Harry? Shut up, dude. <laughs> okay, last one I want to talk about. Finally, I'm reading Why the Last Man. Um, so I've been reading the trade paperbacks, and I'm on the third one right now. So I've, I've actually read quite a bit of it. It's, again, as... I mean, as I'm sure you are too, I'm a sucker for post-apocalyptic stories. Everybody is. I'm sorry. It's just fun to read. Um, that said, though, part of one of my major pet peeves is, and it works with both genders, if, you know, if if they're speaking down to one gender, one to another, and it's speaking down and being condescending and stupid, it, it pisses me off. And this has that in spades. Now, granted, the main character, Yorick, is not, you know, he's not in his 30s, 40s, whatever. He's a young guy, and he's not exactly the most, you know, driven guy to actually, you know, holding down a job and a young family or whatever. Um, but still, a lot of the stuff that goes on with the women and how he's treated, and it's it's always patronizing and condescending and, oh, your little girlfriend, you can go, and all these little things. And it's like, man, it's like... I. I don't like how a lot of the women are being portrayed in this story because very few of them are actually rational. You know what I mean? I, granted, mm -hmm. yes, I understand. Especially in that series, you reach extremes and uh, among the, the characterizations. Yeah, and it's and that kind of ticks me off because it's 
no, there would be rational people left over, women left over, you know? It wouldn't all be these freaking Amazon chicks cutting off their breasts so that they could shoot a bow and arrow kind of thing. Whoa, whoa, whoa. And then all of the other things. It's It just was too kind of, okay, you're really dumbing down what women can accomplish in the world without men. Um, I can appreciate some of it. And, and from that standpoint of, you know, we just lost how many experts in variety of fields and whatnot that were traditionally run by men. So women have to learn it, blah, blah, blah. I get all that. And so I'm, I'm interested in where the story is going because of that. It's just that I'm finding far too many of these little groups of women are being so written in a condescending way. And then they're being condescending to the main character. And it's like, uh, I don't know how long I'm going to last. I'll try to (laughs) keep reading it. But some of the storylines are just kind of getting on my nerves. It's been, several years since I read it. And that was since I read the end of it. I, I think I read the, the first couple of paperbacks like seven, eight years ago. I forget when it came out, but it was shortly after it came out. So I, I, I might have to look at it again, you know, older and wiser and see, see if I have some of those same feelings. Cause of course, as a younger guy, I was like, awesome. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We're looking at 2003 here, the starting ones. Yeah. So it's going back quite a while. It, and I'm I'm curious to see how he's going to mature as a writer throughout as well. And I'm I'm really hopeful kind of thing, because it, it's it's an interesting concept. It's certainly not the most interesting. It's not the I'm, I I still prefer the um, the the outbreak of a virus or a zombie apocalypse kind of thing. I I still prefer those type of things because I can actually believe it more. This just makes no sense at this point. I just think it's hilarious that it takes the last man on earth as a literal concept. Yeah, really. <laughs> so that's going to wrap it up for me. Besides, he has a monkey. Yeah, but he just flings poop. <laughs> Ampersand is awesome. <laughs> okay, so moving into the new releases for this week, we have from Marvel, Age of Apocalypse number two, Amazing Spider-Man 683, the second part of Ends of the Earth, Avengers Academy number 28, the first proper issue of Avengers vs. X-Men, Brilliant number 3, issue 12 of Fear Itself the Fearless. They almost finished Fear Itself before they started the new big event, so they tried, I guess. I don't I would have liked to have seen that finished a couple weeks ago, is what I'm saying. We have Hulk number 50, New Mutants number 40, Thunderbolts number 172, Venom number 15, Wolverine and the X-Men number 8, and Wolverine and the X-Men Alpha and Omega number 4. For DC, issues 8 of Animal Man and Swamp Thing, as well as Saga of the Swamp Thing Volume 1 paperback. It's a recollected uh, Alan Moore's great work with the character from back in the 80s. And for everybody else from Dynamite, we have Voltron Year One, number one, which uh, I talked about a couple weeks ago with Joe. We have from Image, Chu, number 25. Danger Club number one, which honestly, I have no idea if it's going to be good or not, but Image is just putting out so much cool stuff right now. I'm willing to give anything they have a try. Uh, From what I. All I know about is what I read in the solicit. Uh, Basically, all the heroes on Earth went to go fight an alien threat and never came back, leaving the sidekicks behind to hold down the fort. (laughs) That's awesome. I'm interested. No kidding. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Still from Image, we have Fatal number four and Invincible number 90. So so lots of really out there stuff coming out this week, especially from Image. Uh, Really. We need some of that. We need more of that. Image. They're killing it. Yeah. Plain and simple. So that wraps us up here on Comic Book Informer. Uh, of course, visit us at comicbookinformer.com. Like Roger said, 
lots of reviews coming up. Uh, really happy to see that because I'm an absolute slacker. <laughs> or on Twitter at CB Informer. And of course, you can email either of us, Vince or Roger at comicbookinformer.com. You can even request a review and I'll make sure Roger writes it. Oh, really? No. <laughs> That's where we're going with this? <laughs> This is my show. You what I'm saying. I'm going to edit that. <laughs> so again, thank you everybody and we'll see you next week. <laughs> <laughs>